All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Today we begin a study in the book of Hebrews, and we do so with what I affectionately call a book sermon. I have done this in every book that I've started since beginning here at Legacy Baptist Church nine and a half years ago, and uh, I have really enjoyed these. We, as Christians, have a tendency um, sometimes to lose the forest for the trees. You get busy studying a book and you get into the nitty-gritty and you're looking at words and you're looking at phrases and you're, 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 you're getting so detailed that you can sometimes lose sight of the overarching messages that these books, epistles, uh, prophecies are attempting to convey. Almost every epistle in particular has a general theme, a general point, a general direction unto which uh, there is a... a attempt for the readers to glean. And as I've said so often, when you're reading a letter, you don't tend to start in the middle. You don't tend to start on paragraph three. You don't take paragraph three out of context from paragraphs one and two. You take the letter as a whole and as individual parts. And the book sermon gives you an opportunity to frame your mind around what to expect in, in a book, and it gives us the opportunity to position ourselves to be looking for the broader themes of the book rather than just the nitty-gritty details that the book will present to us. It's no mystery to anyone who has been listening over the course of the last couple of months as I've talked to you about starting this series that I am to a degree somewhat intimidated by this study, and that's because of the particular nature of the book of Hebrews. I quoted some of it this morning and was talking to some of you afterwards about some of the confusing elements of the book. Hebrews is a book which assumes a tremendous amount of comfort and knowledge with the Old Testament. It is a book that is very um, organized, but its arguments are not the easiest to glean in clarity. Now, as we walk through, it'll be apparent that the writer of Hebrews, which we'll talk about in a moment, had an expectation that those who were listening were very well versed in the Old Testament. Of course, I will make no such assumption, which means we're going to be spending a good amount of time throughout the series in Old Testament passages, considering Old Testament accounts. The things which we will speak of are deep, some hard to understand. Perhaps some which will not be hard to understand, but difficult to obey. But one thing we know for sure is that if we dig into it with clarity, if we're faithful to the text, and if we have faith as we look into it, we will be richly blessed. The book of Hebrews is really the only New Testament book in which there is a measure of disagreement, even among Orthodox scholars, about who wrote it. Among unorthodox scholars, every book is up for grabs, right? Among unorthodox scholars, every book is, is, is uh, uh, written by some obscure person and uh, is flawed and, and all of the various elements that come with the lack of orthodoxy, with the high academic rigor uh, that rejects 
inspiration that rejects preservation for the sake of humanism. However, there are some truly interesting issues surrounding the authorship of the book of Hebrews, specifically because Hebrews does not overtly state its author. So the church has commonly re relied upon two primary things to determine its source. The first thing that the church has relied upon is the passed down tradition of those who had first-hand knowledge of who wrote the book. The second, upon the general likelihood based upon the nature of the book itself as to who wrote it. And once again, in both of these contexts, there is a measure of ambiguity. There was a general disagreement of tradition between the Eastern and Western wings of the church as it related to the author of Hebrews. In general, the East regarded Paul to be the author, and the West regarded Barnabas to be the author. Likewise, in relation to early church fathers, there was a measure of disagreement. Clement, from about 200 AD, seemed to credit Paul and this did spread through Jerome and Augustine through the western wing of the church to a degree. But the well-respected Tertullian from around 200 AD assigned these quotes to the epistle of Barnabas. As a matter of fact, in certain wings of the church, it was even named the epistle of Barnabas. In the west, there were these manuscripts that would label it the epistle of Barnabas rather than the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, personally, even just from a historical perspective, I would be far more inclined to trust the eastern wing of the church than the western wing of the church. The western wing of the church is the wing from which came the Roman Catholic Church and all of its many perversions, whereas the eastern wing of the church formed the Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church, which did, in, in many general ways, remain much more pure to sound doctrine. But of course, this is not enough. And we have these competing traditions. The next attempt to identify it would be through writing style. If you'll read a lot of conservative commentators, they'll talk much about the writing style of the book. And the writing style of the book is uh, uncommon in certain ways to Paul's other epistles. But of course, this is very subjective. This is subject to a lot of interpretation, to a lot of impression. There are many ways, uh, many who insist that they see Paul reflected in his prose, many others who insist the opposite. So that's not going to help us too much either, right? It's too subject to interpretation. And this is complicated by the fact that among the two primary contenders for authorship, that would be Paul and Barnabas, we don't have any of Barnabas's writings. So we can't really compare writings to writings, right? But there are some things which would commend the theory that Barnabas was the writer. First, Acts chapter 4, verse 36 tells us that Barnabas was a Levite. And the context of the book, without question, reflects someone that is very well versed in the law. Right? And so as you would be looking for someone very well versed in the law, well, we know that Paul was a Pharisee, so he was well versed in the law as well, but Paul was a Benjamite. Barnabas was a Levite. Barnabas was more closely connected, perhaps, then, to the nature of the Levitical order. Second, Acts 14.14 14 reminds us that Barnabas was an apostle. So he certainly meets the qualifications to be a scriptural author in that he was an apostle. Third, 
Romans chapter 11, verse 13 specifically tells us that Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, right? So there's a measure of inconsistency, in theory, with the idea that he was the author of the book that seems specifically geared toward Jewish audience, when in fact Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. All of that being said, however, I'm here to tell you this evening and feel as though I can almost definitively prove to you that Paul was in fact the author of the book of Hebrews. First, the reasons that would commend in a general sense. The point of the book is to speak to the superiority of Jesus Christ to the law of Moses. Those of you that have read Paul's other writings, be it Romans or Galatians or Colossians or 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy, would know that this was something that was deeply near and dear to Paul's heart, the superiority of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the law of Moses. Second, and this is important as well, in every book of instruction, Paul's structure followed a very similar general approach. The first part of the book would be doctrinal, establishing a theological argument. The second part of the book would be practical, exhorting the listener to some measure of decision and practical action based upon the doctrine that they have learned. Look for this. You'll find it in every single one of his books. Romans is a little bit different because it's so long. But you've got chapters 1 through 5. Salvation, the doctrine of salvation. And then you get into the practical, chapters 6 through 8. What do you do about that in mind? And then you have this little parenthetical. What about the Jews, 9 through 11? And then you get out of that parenthetical, and the remainder of the book is back to practical. Colossians, 1 and 2, theological. 3 and 4, practical. Ephesians, 1 through 3, theological. Th 4 through 6, practical. So we see this structure again and again and again in Paul's epistles. But the most compelling case, and I believe this is what makes it an open and shut case, is the sign-off to the book. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Paul wrote this. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul indicates here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that every epistle which he wrote would carry a certain signature of sorts. A personal salutation, which would be a functional calling card to let the people that were reading it understand that this was him, that this epistle was from him. And namely, that calling card is this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, as we walk through the Pauline books, we find a measure of variation in regard to the direct words of his salutation. Romans chapter 16, verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 23 and 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. The salutation by hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 18. We saw this one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's the, that's the one where he mentions that this is his calling card, right? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21. Which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. The salutation by hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Did I go back in time here? First uh, Thessalonians. Looks like I did go back in time. I must have. Uh, uh, we, we've already covered these, but just for emphasis, there they are. First, uh, Second uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Uh, Second Timothy and Titus, I don't think we'd cover those. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Titus chapter 3, verse 15. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Philemon. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Hebrews 13, verse 25. Grace be with you all. Amen. So, Hebrews clearly contains that signature. You say, well, it's not the exact signature, Pastor. It's not the exact signature as 2 Thessalonians, but it is the exact signature of 2 Timothy and Titus, which we know were most definitively Paul. And so we have his signature, the exact same words as the end of Titus, at the end of 2 Timothy, consistent with Paul's other letters. Now, from a humanistic perspective, this is very easy to brush off, right? Anyone can write the words, grace be with you all, amen. If I give you a Christmas card this year and I write, grace be with you all, amen, you're not going to think that Paul wrote it, right? You're not going to say, wow, Paul wrote this. It's got this calling card and this is Paul. It's not going to work that way. Anyone can put down, grace be with you all, amen. But follow me here. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? God inspired Paul in 2 Thessalonians to explicitly mention his calling card. God also inspired the writer of Hebrews to write what he had written. Why would the Holy Spirit of God, knowing that he had inspired Paul to use a calling card, then inspire someone other than Paul to use that calling card at the end of his epistle? That would not make sense. That would be outside of God's typical M.O. That would be outside of God saying, this is the means by which I am going to tell you which, epi which epistles Paul wrote. And if God didn't care for us to know which epistles Paul wrote, then he wouldn't have had Paul put his calling card in. It would make absolutely no biblical sense for God to inspire another biblical author, unless he inspired all biblical authors, to put, grace be with you all, amen. And if you look at the Gospels, or James, or First and Second Peter, or First and Second Third John, or Jude, or Revelation, no other New Testament book has that calling card. 
except for those that Paul wrote and Hebrews. So I have a hard time believing that God would inspire a false Pauline signature in the book of Hebrews. It makes much more sense to me that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God having inspired Paul to mention that he would put down the signature, that Hebrews having that signature tells us definitively that Paul wrote the book. And to me, this settles it. Paul's signature announced in the inspired scriptures is on the letter to the Hebrews. So apart from any change in style, apart from any change in structure, apart from the fact that he does not announce himself at the beginning of the book, apart from the fact that he doesn't put in all of the other normal things that would come along with his book, he did put in the one thing that he said he would put in if it were his book. Grace be with you all. Amen. And so the letter to the Hebrews is penned by Paul. Throughout the rest of this book, I'm going to say Paul as I talk about the person that's writing that authored this book, and that's why I'm going to be crediting it to Paul, because as far as the scriptures are concerned, Paul is the one that penned this book. Now, in relation to when it is written, Hebrews chapter 13, 23 and 24 tells us this, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Hebrews 13, 23 tells us that Timothy had just been set at liberty from some measure of imprisonment. And the anticipation is that Paul would soon meet up with Timothy and then that they would see the brethren together. But Paul also sends his greetings from they of Italy, implying that he was either in Italy or he had been recent enough out of Italy to be able to send the greetings of the Christians in Italy. Now recall that it seems Paul was twice imprisoned in Rome, first from around 60 to 62 AD, and then again from 67 AD onward, at which point he died. It appears that in between these times, and this is a rough estimate, this is, a, this is an attempt to piece together some things, this is not definitive, but it appears that in between these times of arrest, Paul took another journey, and within the scope of that journey, he wrote 1 Timothy, Titus, and would also write Hebrews. My surmise would be that Paul was just being released from his first imprisonment. He was waiting for Timothy, who had been released as well, to join him, where they would journey together. They would get as far as Ephesus together, at which point, according to the testimony of 1 Timothy, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, and he continued along his way. So then he pens in 1 Timothy, I left you at Ephesus for these reasons, right? And Timothy is now at Ephesus. Paul continues along his journeys, after which eventually he'd be arrested. He'd be taken back to Rome. And so Paul presumably writes Hebrews while awaiting Timothy before starting this journey, making the writing of Hebrews somewhere around 63 AD. As with all things, there's plenty of disagreement about this because we as Christians have nothing better to do, right, than to fight about dates. But let's dig into the context itself. As I mentioned, and as is typical of any Pauline epistle, the book of Hebrews can be divided into two parts. There's a doctrinal part, and then there's a practical part. If you have the outline that I made for this book, you'll find that I divided it into two major points. I divided it into a, doctor, or a, yeah, a doctrinal subpoint, first point, and then a practical point as the second point. 
in this case, the theological part starts in chapter 1 and extends through the midpoint of chapter 10. And then the remaining four or so chapters are the practical ones in nature. In this way, it most closely mirrors, again, Romans in structure. And the book begins with an introduction and uh, without an introduction or a greeting, which is very unusual. It, be, it begins right out, and, and that has led some to believe that this was not explicitly intended to be just a letter. It was actually perhaps a sermon that was preached and transcribed. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, if, if it is, then Paul got right into it, right? He didn't have an introductory joke in his sermons. He didn't uh, talk through things and give a, a fancy illustration. He just got right to business, which I can respect. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So Paul begins right away with an expression of comparison between God's previous mode of operation, speaking unto the fathers by the prophets, and God's final mode of operation in these last days, speaking unto us by his Son. More specifically there, if you look in your King James Bibles, you'll notice that his is in italics, a son. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And in this we see the theme of Paul's teaching laid out. That whereas God used in times past fallible mediators between himself and man, here we see the fallible mediator of the prophet. As we continue through the book, we'll see the fallible mediator of the priest and, and the fallibility of the nature of uh, the, the Levitical order. Other men of like passions who, like us, are sinners. In these last days, God has seen fit not to speak to us through a fallible man or a fallible institution, but rather to send his own son, the infallible man, to be the definitive source of the revelation of God to men. But far beyond focusing upon the human mediators and messengers, Paul seeks to paint a contrast, as he so often did, between the law of Moses and everything that was prescribed in the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ, showing not only that Jesus is superior to the prophets and superior to the Levitical priesthood, but superior to the law of Moses. And it is, in fact, here where he begins, not in the way that we might expect, instead speaking directly, instead of speaking directly of the law, Paul frames his contrast showing that though he is a man, Jesus is superior by virtue of redemption and inherited glory, not just to the fallible institutions of the priesthood and of the prophets, but to the mediators of the Old Testament law, the angels themselves. And we find throughout chapter 1 seven Old Testament quotations expressing the superiority of the Son of God to the angels in heaven. And the question arises, we talked about it in Tuesday night not too long ago, if the point is the superiority of Christ to Old Testament mediators and the law of Moses, why bring the angels into it at all? And our answer is in the first three exhortative warnings that Paul gives in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, 
lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So Paul speaks here in the context of the word spoken by angels, which when we get there, we will see, and those of you that were there on that Tuesday night know, was a direct reference to the law that was given at Sinai. With the contrast being that if Christ is superior to the angels and the law was given by the hand of angelic mediators to Moses and the nation of Israel, how much more important and urgent must be the message that is given not by the hand of the mediators that are the angels, but by the very Son of God who is exalted high above the angels. And in this we find the reason for Paul's angelic focus. Because Christ's superiority to the angels establishes the gospel's superiority to the law of Moses. And this transitions us into the first discussion about the nature of God's Son on its ter own terms rather than as a direct contrast to another. And what is fascinating is that up until Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the name of God's Son was not given. Paul spoke theoretically of the superiority of the Son of God to the prophets and the angels, and only in verse 9 of chapter 2 introduces the name of God's Son when he writes, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Paul extols the merits of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the glory that followed it, continuing then to show how Christ, who was not an angel, but a man himself, was positioned in a unique way by conquering the power of death and destroying the works of the devil to secure mankind's redemption and to comfort man in his sinful state. So Paul shows the superiority of Christ, the man Jesus Christ, to the angels. And then he goes on to speak of Moses, and he does so naturally in a truly honoring way, extolling the virtue and faithfulness of the prophet, but reminding the readers that whereas Moses was a faithful servant over a house which God had built, Jesus was a faithful son over the house which he himself built and leading the reader thus into the second great warning, in many ways foreshadowing Paul's practical applications in the second half of the book. So he writes the second great warning. The first great warning was pastor, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, to take earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The second great warning is in chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. As we trace these warnings, notice the theme. Take heed lest at any time you would let the things that you have heard slip. Warning number two, take heed that there be not among you an evil heart of unbelief. We're starting to see a picture built of the general thematic direction of this book. Listen, right? Take heed. Take what you know and make it what you believe. Don't fall short of all of the knowledge that you've been given. 
You know, we here at Legacy Baptist Church are, generally speaking, even as it relates to the church more broadly, we are a very well-versed group of believers as it relates to the Word of God. That comes with responsibility, Christian. And that's what we're seeing here. The Hebrews knew the Old Testament well. They knew the Bible very well. They were well-versed. Imagine the difference that it must have been to have Jewish believers and Gentile believers, where the Gentile believers don't have years and years and years of Old Testament knowledge to build upon their understanding of of, of Jesus Christ and of redemption and, and this disparity. And yet Paul's speaking to these Hebrew believers and he says, take heed, brethren, that you don't let faith slip through the cracks through all of this understanding and knowledge that you have. Skipping to chapter 4. He says in verse 8, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Notice the next exhortation. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Once again, this is an extension of that second warning that we, that, that we are warned to be cautious lest there be among us any that have an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Paul's writing to this group of people steeped in the Jews' religion, invested in the law of Moses given by the dispensation of angels, in the words of the prophets, in the function of the priests, in the function of the temple. But it was not this system that was the spiritual promised land. Christ is the spiritual promised land. It was not that system. It was Christ. And Paul's deepest passion was that these who had received this heavenly gift, who were believers, would not fall short of belief in their generation, as so many of their fathers had in their generation. That though they had stepped from God's working in Israel through the law into God's workings in the church through grace, yet the need and necessity to heed the revelation of God to man was in no way diminished by this transition. And much to the contrary, it was amplified to new heights because the authority of the messenger was so much greater than the authority of the messenger that had come to their fathers. The very word of God made flesh. A message reminiscent of one which Jesus often gave, gave during his time on earth, of which, of course, we'll explore as we walk through the book together. And so we're called in this second warning that we not fall short of unbelief. Paul has spoken of Jesus' superiorities to the angels by this point, from which he extols the superiority of the gospel, then the superiority of Christ's faithfulness in the vein of that of Moses. And then he begins to turn his attention to the nature of the Levitical priesthood itself, specifically tying Jesus to a superior priesthood to that of the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood of the law was an Aaronic priesthood, a Levitical priesthood, right? Came through the tribe of Levi, through the man Aaron, and was ministered unto them from there. But Paul connects Jesus to a different priesthood, an everlasting priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. 
the priest of Salem found in Genesis 14. He was the priest who came and who met Abraham after the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and the confederacy of kings there in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the days of Lot and such. And again, we'll speak to this when we get there. Paul testified that there are many things to say about Melchizedek that were hard to be uttered, that it's difficult and deep stuff. And we're going to have to spend some time ironing all of that out when we get there. If Paul says it's tough, <laughs> then you know it's tough. But this led Paul into a lament when he had told them that he desired to teach them all of these things regarding Melchizedek, but he lamented that he could not do so. And he could not do so because the Christians unto whom he was writing weren't ready to comprehend those deeper things. And as a matter of fact, that's why he was writing what he was writing. That's why the warnings are so clear. Because he was still having to speak to them of the basics instead of allowing, being able to get into them, these who had so much knowledge, in the deeper things. They were so busy arguing over the basics that Paul felt as though he did not have the freedom to speak to them of these deeper elements. So he wrote to them in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Paul rebukes the readers. He says, at this point in your Christian life, Hebrews, those of you who, have been, who are so well-versed in the foundation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you ought to have gotten this quickly, excelled quickly, and you ought to be teachers yourselves by this point, but you're so busy having to learn these lessons again and again and relitigating old arguments again and again that there simply isn't any time for growth. This kind of sounds like our own church, doesn't it? Not just legacy, I mean the church of our age. We spend all of our time fighting over the basics. How much time have I spent in this church having to talk about what it means to be saved? Not necessarily because we don't get it, but because there's so much error out there, right? How much time have we had to spend litigating whether or not we can trust our Bibles? How much time have we spent discussing the various basic elements of the faith? How many of us spend our entire lives drinking the spiritual milk of the Word, lacking the fundamental discernment to digest the deeper things of God because we're so busy litigating or fighting or relitigating the basics of the faith? And we say it's because it's so important, and it is. But if we spend all of our time talking about the milk, when are we going to get to the meat? Following this parenthetical, Paul does actually move into the teaching about Melchizedek, the nature of the Levitical priesthood, and the foundation of Jesus' ministry of mediation being on the immutable principles of God's faithfulness and power, establishing through these arguments the mediation of Christ in grace 
to be superior in every way to the mediation of the Levitical priesthood through the law. And this leads us to the final doctrinal lesson before Paul goes practical. That not only is Jesus superior to the angels and those that were the mediators of the law, thus superior to the law itself, superior to Moses as a faithful servant over God's house, superior to the Levitical priesthood, but also and finally, Christ's new covenant is superior in every way to the old covenant. And this is not only the most important, but in many ways the easiest of Paul to defend, of Paul's arguments to defend. Because the Old Testament itself admits this reality very clearly. Paul quotes in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, Jeremiah 31, verses 21 through 24. He says, I'll begin in verse 7 for context, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be, a merciful, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so Paul uses simply the very promise of the Old Testament to establish the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And this would take us through the midpoint of Hebrews chapter 10, at which point we step into Paul's application. And the simple the simple theme of Paul's application is everything that the warnings of his doctrinal part pointed us to. Faith. The just shall live by faith. Take heed that you fall, that you do not fall short in unbelief. A life compelled by intrinsic investment in the message of Jesus Christ to us. And this sounds simple, and indeed it is simple, but it isn't at all simple, is it? We invest in so many things, and we put our time into them, and we put our money into them, and we put our mind upon them. The Jews loved the law. They had invested in the law. They had believed in the law. You have things you love. You have things that you have invested in. You have things you live by. Even wonderful things. Integrity, patriotism, honor, and Jesus Christ is far superior to them all. And as we take the doctrinal elements, we're not Hebrews. Our investment in the law, with perhaps a few rare exceptions, is nowhere near what it was to the Hebrew believers. But maybe there are some investments of your own. 
And as we consider this warning, take heed that you don't fall short of belief, that you fall not short in unbelief. Maybe it's not the fact that you've invested so much in the law, or you've invested so much in the Levitical priesthood, or you've invested so much in the temple and the tabernacle and the workings of the tabernacle, but maybe there's something else you've invested in. And it's competing with Christ. And you need to be reminded that Christ is superior. Maybe there's some other religious motion that has competed with Christ. Maybe, like the Jews with the law, there has been some essence of standards or heritage. Maybe it is. For some, it's patriotism, right? Raising the flag above the cross. And you've invested in it. And you've lost sight of the fact that Christ is superior. And you've invested in all of these other things. And the call is this. Invest in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Live out the investment in Christ. Christ's words are so much more important, so much more powerful, so much more valuable in our lives than these other things into which we have invested. So why aren't they more important? Why are those things more important to us? All right? Why do not Christ's words consume our vision, fill the fibers of our being, consume our thoughts and intents and actions? And the commands of Paul in light of this are fourfold. In Hebrews chapter 10, as he transitions to the practical, he says this, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Because of this new and living way which Jesus has forged for us in, the, in redemption through his blood, because of the reality that Jesus Christ is superior to all other religious elements, all other priorities in our lives, let us do these things. Let us draw near. Let us draw near in purity and sincerity of faith. Let us hold fast to the provisions, to the teachings with all of our being. Let us provoke one another unto love and good works. And let us assemble together regularly and so much the more as we see the day approaching. And if the words of Jesus Christ are so much superior to the words of the law or the words of men or the words of politicians or the words of pundits, if the words of Christ are so much more important, then these things, drawing near, holding fast, provoking one another, assembling together, ought to consume us. And this is what faith calls us unto. When what I know becomes what I believe, when the superiority of Christ over all things in the heavens and on earth becomes what I do, I will draw near with a pure heart. I will hold fast to the profession of faith. I will provoke my brothers and sisters in Christ unto righteousness, and I will assemble with them regularly. 
And this leads us to chapter 11. We're very familiar with chapter 11. What's often called the great hall of faith. After this exhortation unto faith, unto a faith in the superiority of Christ, and what that should mean for us, we see a whole chapter of examples of men and women whose lives reflected this faith. They weren't perfect, but when the dust settled, there was no question that they were faithful. They had built their lives on the conviction that they were living for and seeking a different, a better country whose builder and maker was God, that they knew full well the superiority of that which was to come for the superior that, uh, over the, the things which were now. And so they lived unto those things, leading Paul to another great exhortation in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking of all those men and women who have gone before, again, we'll be talking about a lot of Old Testament within that chapter. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The call is not unto perfection, Christian. The call is unto faithfulness. Not that you would achieve every ambition of spiritual relationship and purity, but that you would long for it, look for it, and live for it. Because you believe that Christ's way, Christ's word, is superior and supreme in your life. And these final chapters thus call us to endure, to obey, to the fullest outworking of our faith, to not remain as babes in the Word, but to move on to perfection, to progress, because we have a great high priest, to progress because we are under a superior covenant, to progress because there really is no limit, because we have the Word of God made flesh as our source of revelation. And as we wrap up this book sermon, this is the call for our lives as well. Over the next many weeks, we will be exploring this book in detail. And as we do so, the point of the book compels us to earnestly cling to faith, to, to guard ourselves against falling short of that standard of faith through distraction, through unbelief, through selfishness, knowing just how superior the message of Jesus Christ is, not only to the words of the world around us, which is obvious, but to any other revelation that has ever been given to mankind. And to that end, we are called to draw near with that pure heart, to hold fast to that profession of faith, to provoke one another, and to determine to assemble together all the more as we see the day approaching. This will be our journey and our privilege. And now is our time to prepare our hearts for that now is our time to orient ourselves, to ready the soil of our hearts. We'll talk more about that next week. To receive the word of God with humility and gladness. To be ready to accept these warnings. To be ready to take these steps of belief. 
to guard ourselves against being, as Paul would have to rebuke the Hebrews, those who, when we should be teachers, we are still stuck on the milk of the word. And may God use this series to grow us, to mature us, to make us skillful in the scriptures, and to be ready unto every good work. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.